I want to begin our study this morning by asking three questions that I'd like for each and every one to consider. Here's the questions. Number one, what is the most widely used and deceitful tool that Satan has at his disposal? Number two, which heart condition is capable of blinding even the most committed religious person? Number three, which attitude robs God of what He truly deserves and leads to spiritual weakness and destruction? The answer to all three of these questions is the same. The answer is pride. Pride is Satan's big gun. It's universal. It's a part of our humanity. It's as ancient as Satan being cast out of heaven. It's as old with humans as Adam and Eve in the garden. And it will be here until the world comes to an end. I believe that we are aware of surface pride. But pride is hard to see when it's in us. You know, Christ said we can look through a beam in our own eye and see a speck that's in our brother's eye. So we see pride in other people, I'm sure. See the fruit of that. But it's very hard for us to see that in ourselves. And there's reasons why that we want to talk about this morning. We wrestle with the symptoms of pride, but we're blind to its root. People can push pride down below the surface and show a false humility. And we see what they're showing us, but we don't know what's in other people's hearts, and that's the reason we don't have the right to judge anyone else's heart on this matter. But we know in our own heart what's there. The problem is Satan uses this to blind us to see our heart as it really is. In 1 John 2 verse 16, the Bible says, For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. These three categories of temptation and of sin, the lust of the the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We see these being used all the way back to the beginning. It was a combination of them that caused Eve to reach for the forbidden fruit. The devil used this against Christ in the wilderness. He used every one of these to tempt Christ. And Christ responded with a word from God. He used God's word to answer every one of these temptations. But I submit to you this morning that pride is the broadest of the three. They're all a factor, they're all a problem, but when we start thinking about pride and how it affects our lives, then we see that it is the seedbed of a lot of other sins. Think about the root of this list of sins. And certainly this is not a comprehensive list of sins. But pride is the root of selfishness. It's the root of being self-willed. It's the root of the lack of compassion. Pride is the root of anger, of partiality, 
of being unforgiving, of jealousy, of envy, resisting authority, being passive-aggressive. Even though we may not show it outwardly, we're doing everything we can inwardly to protest. Pride is at the root of that. Rebellion, pride is at the root of that. Pride steals things from us that God wants to bless us with. It steals our contentment. It steals our peace that Brother D talked about last Sunday. It steals our true fulfillment and it steals our unity. You see, we look at all of these temptations and these weaknesses and if we look closely, we see that these are symptoms of a deeper problem. This morning, I want us to peel back an additional layer of our heart. I'm committed to sincerely look at my heart and see if I can see these tendencies of pride. In fact, as I've done this study, I've already determined there's things in my life that need to change because I find them to be motivated by pride. I want to ask each one of you to do the same. Not a surface analysis, but a deep examination to the core of who we are. I will tell you that this will be some of the hardest examination that we will ever make. It's even harder when we see it sometimes to admit it and to make the proper adjustments in our life. We have to root out pride and place humility in its place if we want God to accept us and bless us and help us through our Christian walk. The eyes and ears are useless when the mind is blind. How often did Christ look out at His audience and He said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. They weren't having problems with physically hearing. They had a blind mind. And the Pharisees are the classic example. They were built on pride. And when Christ tried to address them, they didn't listen, they didn't hear it, they didn't apply it. Who needs to hear admonition on pride? Very simply, the proud do. The problem is, those that are proud don't believe that they need to hear that. I can conceive of a person under the sound of my voice right now that's saying, here's another lesson on pride. I've heard about this. I know about this. I don't need it. I'm not a Korah. I didn't rebel against God. I'm not a Diotrephes. I didn't let pride lift me up. The problem is, we don't see clearly when we're blinded by Satan with this pride. If we do not believe that we need open, honest self-evaluation, then I believe the Bible teaches we do have pride. Because humility looks and checks and adjusts. Wisdom always listens. These are the characteristics that we need to develop in our life. And if we're unwilling to take that deep examination and look at our heart, then maybe that's an indicator that we do have a problem with pride. Pride puts us in the darkness. We're unable to admit to ourselves the problem that we have. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, 
The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know the human heart? I'll tell you plain and simple, God is the one that knows the human heart. He can see us exactly for what we are. Why would Jeremiah ask that question, who can know the heart? Why would he say that the heart is exceedingly deceitful or deceitful above all things? Because pride blinds us. We're blind to our own weaknesses and we can't see them. We develop tunnel vision and we see around those things and we're unable to see. So what's the solution? If in our humanity, if in our fleshly perspective we can't see our heart as it actually is, that it can actually deceive us and take us to places of wickedness, how do we resolve this problem? I believe it goes back to the examination that I've proposed this morning for each one of us, and it goes back to looking to God's Word. God can see the heart. God's perspective is the only one that really matters. God brings reality into chaos. Does what I think from a human standpoint really matter? Does what other people around me say and do and influence me to do? It matters, but it is minimally important compared to God because God is the one that brings us the truth. He brings us reality. That's how we can discover the blindness that we have in our heart. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I want you to really concentrate on the last ten words of this passage. We've heard this passage over and over again. But if we ever stop to think about, if we really want to find those dark places in our heart that we're blind to, the only thing that's going to bring light is this powerful sword, the Word of God. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What is an intent? That's our motive. That's what makes us decide what, what we're going to do, what we're going to think, how we're going to speak. We need to let the, Lord, the, the Word of the Lord go and bring light to our thoughts and to the intents of the heart. So no other perspective other than God's really matters. That applies here, that applies across the board. We should have a goal to see ourselves as exactly as God sees us. That's where we're going to see reality. That's where we're going to see truth. That's where we're going to come to a light where we have darkness. So the question then is, how does God look at pride? What is His perspective? If it's the only one that matters, what is it? Proverbs 6, verse 16, 17, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto Him. The very first one on the list is a proud look. These words that are used here, hate and abomination, 
You know, in Scripture, there's a few select words that are used for the worst of the worst. One of these words is anathema. Book of 1 Corinthians uses that word. It means accursed or being formally excommunicated by God. That word's not even translated out of the original language. It carries such a strong meaning. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, it stated there that God wanted to vomit out those people because of their lukewarmness. These are strong words. This word, abomination, is one of those words. It means exceptionally loathful, hateful, sinful, wicked, vile. This is God's perspective on pride. Well, we're not that proud person. Remember, we've already talked about, we don't have that life-dominating pride, so these perspectives from God are not valid for us. I want you to drop down 10 chapters to Proverbs chapter 16, and let's look at verse 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Does that make a distinction between the worst of the worst that, that are dominated by pride? That says every person. That includes you and I. If, our, if there's pride in our heart, God sees that as an abomination. Think about these words. Do we want God to look at the characteristics in our life as being disgusting? That He hates them? That He detests these attitudes? I'm afraid that we don't see pride as an awful sin. We think it's minor. Sometimes we will even defend pride as something positive. I will tell you that I've never found the word pride used in Scripture as something positive. It's always a negative. The positive offset of that is humility. That's what we see used in God's Word in a positive way. We have to make a distinction between proper self-image and pride. And we're all mixed up in our world today in the way we use the word pride in our vernacular because we use it to describe a lot of things. We may use it to describe some things that would be proper in our self-image. Things like value as God sees us. Does God see value in us as humans, from the standpoint of the fact that He created us, He gave us an eternal component, the soul, He places value on those things. And we need to look at ourselves, as we said, as God looks at us. Does He look at us in our flesh and in our humanity and say, there's a lot of value in this human being? We know that He doesn't. The Bible teaches, Isaiah said, we're His filthy rags. Christ said in, in Luke that even when we've done everything to obey God, we're still unworthy servants. You see, the value's not in us, it's in what God does through us. And we have to look at that distinction. We need a healthy self-image. We need to have self-respect. But we can have self-respect and have, humanity, have humility along with it. You see, that doesn't dictate that we're lifting ourselves up, but we're looking at ourselves from the proper perspective. We can have satisfaction in a job well done. You know, Solomon said that we should 
be satisfied in our labor that that is a gift from God. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 13. We need to have joy and satisfaction when we obey God. And we result, we, the result blessings, the resulting blessings come into our life. These are healthy ways that we look at ourselves. And the bottom one there, identity needs to be centered in Christ. That's the important one. That's the right way to look at ourselves. But pride is described in Scripture as something different. Look at Romans 12, 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Again, these words tell us that there's a proper perspective, and that's God's perspective, and none of us that lift ourselves up are ever right. We're letting pride bring those attitudes into our life. We hear this word self-esteem a lot. We need a proper self-esteem. I would say we need self-respect. I question if we need self-esteem. Philippians 2 tells us that we're to esteem the other higher than ourselves. If we're not careful, we give in to this idea, well, we can lift ourselves up. We need to lift ourselves up some above what reality is because we need that esteem to feel good about ourselves. Self-love. Christ said, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. There's a, a way that we need to look at ourselves and love ourselves, but if we're not very careful because of our environment and the way the world is around us, we overdo that. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We love ourselves and lift ourselves up and we look down on our neighbor. If our focus is centered on ourself, that's pride. If we're looking at our own good, our own righteousness, the things that we've been able to accomplish and do, which so often is the focus of the world, then that's pride according to the Scripture. Our identity cannot be in our pride and us please God. It just can't. We have to put these things away. We have to see ourselves as God sees us. I would submit to you this morning that pride is woven into our identity. Here in America, we're free, we're independent, we make our own decisions. Our world talks all the time about being proud of this and being proud of that and being proud of something else. We give awards, we give plaques, we give applause to one another. And what part of this would be within the, the realm of proper self-image, it gets distorted and people push it too far and we don't see the distinction where we need to stop with the human accolades and we need to see things from God's perspective. The world is about boasting and bragging and posturing. Social media is a platform for posturing. We want to present the polished version of ourselves online so we can get all of those likes and all of those follows from other people. We want to present something that's not reality. What would be behind us wanting to do that? If we're honest, we begin to see the root of these things is pride. Social media is an arena for competing for attention. 
And when we do that, we begin to compete. There's been many lessons given from this pulpit about the fact that we're not to be competing with one another. It either makes us prideful or it ruins our self-image because we don't measure up to what everybody else is doing in their presentation on this platform. Social media is a stage for gossip and drama. Of course, we can use it properly and for things that are good. But all in all, if we want to be objective and if we want to look at this in reality and we want to see it as God sees it, it's a place for people to boast, to brag, to use these sentiments that we see that God holds in contempt, that He detests. Is this the definition of leading a quiet and peaceful life? the things that we've just described. Our security, our identity does not come from what we deserve or what we can do. It comes from our Creator who loves us and gave His Son for us. We need to be filled up with Christ and our identity centered on Him, not on our pride. First Corinthians 4, verse 7, For who maketh thee to differ from another, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as though we didn't receive it from God? You see the same perspective. Every talent that we have, every benefit, every positive thing that we might be tempted to boast in is something that God has given us. We didn't acquire it ourselves. Satan wants us to think that we did, and he wants us to focus on ourselves, but the reality is it's been given to us. How are we going to use these talents and these blessings that God has given to us? Are we going to use them to glorify Him? Or are we going to use them to build ourselves up? God wants to bless us. He gives us these talents. He gives us resources. But He wants to bless those that will humbly use these and give Him the glory rather than taking the credit for that ourselves. Jimmy Evans says that pride carries a double curse. And I believe that he's right about that. And here's the double curse. Those that are motivated by pride, God will reject. He will resist. We're going to look at some some verses about that, but some are already coming to your mind. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the first part of the curse. When we let this darkness dwell in our heart, and we're not opening up and looking at it in reality, then we're allowing God to pull away from us, to resist us. Do we want God resisting us? Could we term that as a curse? Certainly. Here's the second curse. Those that are motivated by pride are susceptible to Satan. So it's a double problem for us. God pulls back. He resists us because of our pride. And who's always willing to step in and take advantage? I want to use the example of King David to point out some of these factors that we're talking about with regard to pride. David was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't a bad person to the core. Like his predecessor, Satan... I'm sorry, Saul. Saul was dominated by pride. He was rejected as being king over Israel because of pride. 
Once he was rejected, his life was a, a pride-filled destruction, just a cycle to destruction. And you know, Solomon said pride leads to destruction, or it comes before destruction. And we see that in the life of Saul. But David wasn't that way. He wasn't dominated by that. But David made some grievous mistakes. And I think if we analyze those mistakes, we'll see that at the root of those mistakes was pride. The most noteworthy of his mistakes probably, or the most well-known, would have been the mistakes that he made with Bathsheba. He was tempted by the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh. He saw her. He called her to him. He laid with her. She had a child from that. And David had Uriah, the husband, murdered to cover all of that up. He committed these things, these lustful things that we talked about, but pride was behind that. And the reason we know it was when Nathan came to him in 2 Samuel 12 and related to him about that rich person who took the little pet lamb from the poor person and had it slaughtered to feed his guest, what was the root of that? It was pride. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. Do you know David woke up at that point? He'd been blinded. He'd done all of those things and he was fighting off being responsible for them, or they being wrong, because he'd lifted himself up. He thought he was above the, the regular person, and he could do these things, and he could cover them up. But pride carried him to a very bad place. Did David suffer because of that? He laid on the earth for seven days straight, fasting and praying to God. That child became ill and the child passed away. David suffered immensely because of his mistake that started out with lifting himself up. He wrote the book of Psalms 32, the chapter of Psalms 32 and Psalms 51, and he talked about how he languished under the pain of that guilt and how he felt. Any time that we allow sin in our life, it's going to bring pain. And that's, that's what we see in these cases. The more we can be humble and submit to God, the less problems we're going to have, the less pain we're going to have. And we need to seek after God, to be close to Him, and to do that with our humble spirit. Another time later on, David had... Again, the idea of how great he was. He decided he wanted to number the troops. So they went out and they counted 800,000 soldiers in Israel. 500,000 soldiers in Judah. What a great king David was to have all of these soldiers under his command. We have two accounts of what happened. The first one is in 2 Samuel 24. I want to read verse 1. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. God did not want David to count those soldiers. God knew the heart, the human heart that David was blind to, and he said, No, don't do it. But David did it anyway. The end result of David's pride was 70,000 people died. 
It wasn't one man, Uriah. It was 70,000 people that died after this happened because God was displeased. And here it says that he was in anger. I don't believe that the Lord forced David to do something he didn't want to. The Lord knew David's heart. And he saw that pride and it created anger. That's the first curse. God is going to resist that attitude. Here's the second account, 1 Chronicles 21 and 1, given in a different part of the history of the Bible. And here's what this verse says. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Do you see the second curse? God resisted. He was angry. He pulled away from blessing David. And what happened? Satan was ready and willing to step in and to take advantage of that opening. You see, that's the problem with pride. Even if it's a little bitty dark place in the very bottom of our heart, any time that flares up, Satan's ready. He will take advantage of that. We're blinded by that. We have to look at that as what it is, and we have to apply the perspective of God. How did David fare when he was a man of humility? He was a shepherd boy. God gave him the tools he needed to defeat a bear and a lion. He went up and saw Goliath challenging the armies of God. God give, gave him everything he needed to defeat this worthy adversary. The greatest warrior of the Philistines was defeated by David. Do you remember reading in those accounts that everything that David did, he gave God the credit for? He didn't take the credit for himself. David saw Saul at his worst as he was filled with envy and jealousy against David. David experienced the spear that barely missed because Saul wanted to kill him. And that didn't just happen one time. Saul was out to get him. David saw that and experienced it, and yet these cases that we're talking about, David was blind to the very same problem that caused that. God wants to bless us. He wants to use us. He wants us to defeat the Goliaths in our lives. He fearfully and wonderfully made us to be successful as His followers. He's a jealous God. He wants what's best for us. But He's not going to go against our will. We have free will. And if we want to choose these attitudes of pride, He's going to not enable us to do that. He's going to pull away. He's going to resist that. And Satan will come in and take advantage. So we see the first curse... And we see the second curse. And today those curses remain for those who are unwilling to address the pride in their lives. 1 Peter 5, 5-8, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. These principles are repeated over, over, and, over and over in God's Word. That was, just wasn't something effective in the Old Testament. We read these verses time and time again. Probably pride is one of the biggest subjects in all of the Scripture. And we, we can't even touch the surface of it. 
But here Peter is giving admonition, and I want you to notice that he said, Submit and to be clothed with humility. Humility causes us to submit. Pride causes us to resist. Those are opposite ends of the spectrum. And they're driven by opposite motives. Why did Peter say to be clothed with humility? Because humility doesn't come natural. We've talked about the human heart and where it directs us. And people tell us to follow the human heart. Humility has to be put on like I put this suit coat on this morning before I came to church. We have to clothe ourselves with it. We have to envelop ourselves with it. If we don't make a deliberate choice to do that, we're not going to have true deep down humility. Our human nature will lead us to a different place. We continue to read, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. And notice, I think it's very interesting that this passage about Satan is put right here after the admonition to be humble. It says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I've seen the video of the lions hunting in Africa, and if I understand it correctly, the females do most of the hunting, and you'll see them, and they will crouch down in the tall grass, and they're very stealthy, and they'll stay right against the ground, and they'll advance on their prey to the point that they have the opportune moment, and then they stand up. Just like we read in Chronicles, Satan stood up and took advantage of David. That's what he does with us. At the right time when pride is there and we allow it to lift us up, then Satan stands up. And he's as a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. He's seeking someone that's let pride get in their heart, that hasn't followed the admonition that was given to be clothed with humility. The Pharisees are the perfect example, and we could just track them all the way through the New Testament, and we can see all of these passages and all of the words that, that Christ used with them. He talked about them being whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. He said, you draw nigh to me with your lips, and you honor me. There's that surface attitude, but he said, your heart is far from me. They had a prideful inside that caused them to be full of dead men's bones. In Luke 18, Christ said that, or the teaching was noted there, it was given to those that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. The Pharisees often confronted Christ. Many occasions they would confront Him and try to catch Him and try to trick Him. I want to reference this one in Luke 14, 3-6. Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And I think this, is it lawful, is a key here. This reveals something about the pride of the Pharisees. He goes on and Christ heals this person. And he says again, this is... Which one of you, having an ass or an oxen fall into a pit, will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again these things. 
You see, the Pharisees were so proud that they felt like they had a right to alter God's Word. They made laws about the Sabbath that God had not made. We read about one in Matthew 12 where they came and they talked about Christ and they put guilt on His disciples because they harvested grain and ate it on the Sabbath. And Christ said, you don't understand mercy rather than sacrifice. And here, they were not happy that a person had been healed from a terrible disease, but they wanted to take credit for a law that was not even in God's Word. And that's why Christ said, is it lawful? Can I do this? Is this against God's will? The Torah that they wrote, the additions that they wrote, it was not lawful. In their mind, it was not lawful, but God had never condemned that. Do we see that anywhere in the world today, that attitude that, that we can change up what God's Word means? How many times have we been admonished from this pulpit about humanism? The people out there, they don't respect anybody but their self and they've made their self God. That's the same core problem. That's pride. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Oh, they gave the lip service. On the surface, they, they were great, but what was in their heart? The same thing that's in the heart of a humanist. 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35 Women keep silence in the church. How many people in the world today take that Scripture and they say, that can't mean what it says. It just can't mean that. I don't agree with it. I, I believe that God would be being partial. People all the time, they take these places in God's Word that are very clearly stated and they change them to be what they want them to be. You see how that's the same root problem? Do we have so much ability within ourselves from a human standpoint that we can change God's law? Matthew 18, Christ said to forgive people 70 times 7. You know what some people have told me before? Well, you know what? That person hurt me so badly. I think God understands how wounded I am and how bad I hurt. So I really don't think God would expect me to forgive that person. I don't really think God would expect me to love that person. I don't really believe that God would expect me to pray for that person. We can have that opinion. We can lift our opinion above God's. That's not what God's Word says. God's Word says we are to love those that hate us. We're to love our enemies. We're to bless those that curse us. We're to pray for those who persecute us. The more we center every issue on Scripture, the better equipped we will be to see the things as God sees them. In light of that vein of thought, I want to think just a moment as we wrap up our lesson about some things that we're dealing with right now. Things that are current. Things that's been going on for the last five months in our world. I'd like to call your attention to a section of Scripture that's found in Leviticus chapter 13. There's 46 verses contained in this passage and I would appeal to each one of you on your own time, when you have time, go and read the 
Read the whole chapter. Get the context of what's being stated here. God is declaring His will regarding the infectious disease of leprosy and similar skin disorders. Leprosy is a bacterial disease which spreads from person to person by airborne respiratory droplets that comes from coughs or sneezes. The writings of Moses exhibit amazing accuracy, medical foreknowledge that was not known to any other person other than the one that read these instructions that were given in the law of Moses. This is just one piece of a large body of scientific foreknowledge that demonstrates that God truly wrote the Scriptures. Now, I'm not referring back to these verses as something that's law for us today, but I want us to think about God's perspective. All of these things that's been going on with social distancing and, and the requirements that we've been given from our government, how does God look at that? If you stop to think about that perspective, remember we said it's the only perspective that matters. How does God look at it? As you read this passage in Leviticus, you're going to find the following principles. Early detection of this disease based on symptoms. Isolation of people showing early symptoms until a determination could be made as to whether they had contracted the disease. Washing clothes for sanitation purposes. Speaking out loudly to warn people of the danger of this contagion. And as you read this later, I want you to notice how detailed these processes are, looking at the lesions on the skin, what color they were, what color the hair was that was growing out of them, how that they would look and wait a week and then they'd look again, and if they didn't see improvement, they would wait another week and look again. And they were isolated until they determined if this was something that would be a threat or not. God even asked the contaminated to give visible indications of mourning and ceremonial uncleanness so there would not be any mistake made about what was going on with this. And I understand these things had dual meaning as a lot of the things in the Old Testament did, foreshadowing of things that were to come. But they also had application at that moment to protect the health of God's people. And He wrote these things for that reason. That's his perspective when there's a contagious disease going around. His choice was to guide his people to a place where they wouldn't be catching this disease. Let's read these verses together. This is at the end of that passage. And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, Unclean, unclean. All the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone without the camp shall his habitation be. In these two verses, we see in addition to ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness, in addition to the sign that covering your upper lip was the fact that you were mourning, in addition to that, we see these things, warning others for their protection. 
social distancing, and even covering the mouth when speaking to others. A Jew that I read that still follows the law of Moses said that that was one of the reasons they covered their mouth was to protect other people from their breath. Remember, leprosy is caught with the, the, the moisture that comes out of the respiratory system. Coughing and sneezing. It seems clear that God put these perimeters in place for good reasons, even if multiple reasons. And I believe that we need to be very careful about saying that asking people to cover their mouth or to social distance or to do these other things, we find those to be intrusive. We find these to be tyrannical. When God Himself, in this case, put these things in place. We've read repeatedly over the last several months the verses in Romans chapter 13, 1 to 7. Last Sunday night, Brother Stanley stood here in this pulpit and he read the whole chapter of 2 Peter 2. There's clear principles that are put in place about how we're to obey the government and, and what our attitude's to be. And this morning, I want to ask you to look in the depths of your heart and look for pride that might be blinding, and look for the thoughts and the intents of the heart according to the things that we've read in God's Word. And then I want you to make a decision on how we resolve these things. People have these things rolling around in their mind. They continually talk about them. We need to resolve these issues, and we need to move forward. And the way we're going to resolve these is to look at things the way that God looked at these things and to adopt God's perspective rather than leaning on our own perspective. That's going to be the resolution when we take what God has taught us and we take these passages for what they mean and we implement them into our lives. There's medical exclusions. We have exclusions for the worship service itself. The intent of the law, as it's been stated, is when we can't social distance, we need to cover our mouth. These are the things that are in the regulations that our governor and our other government officials has given us. What are we going to do? How are we going to look at all of these issues? I pray this morning that each one of you will receive the things that has been said this morning in the spirit that they've been given, speaking the truth in love as a watchman that God has called to blow a trumpet. If we don't blow a trumpet on pride and identify it for what it is and get it corrected, then we're not doing our job as those who should be in oversight of the congregation. Every day we have a choice of who we're going to place the spotlight on. Every morning when we get up, we can take that spotlight and we can shine it up on Christ. We can shine it up on the cross where it belongs. Anybody that comes to us and gives us credit or puts thoughts in our mind about our esteem and what it needs to be, we can reflect that right off of ourselves up on God. Or we can do the other. We can shine that light on us. 
hoping someone will look at us and give us credit for something. Lift us up in some way and, and have us to look better in our own eyes. We are creatures of free will and we make that choice. And I hope after we've looked at this, after we've done a self-examination, that we'll keep looking. We'll keep trying to identify the things that need to be adjusted in our heart so that that spotlight is always on God, not on us. The last verse for this morning, we read verse 3 earlier about we don't need to think of ourselves more highly than we should. I want you to think about what precedes this. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Does a living sacrifice have its own rights and its own will and its own mind? Is personal choice sacred above God's choice? Not if we're a living sacrifice, it's not. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. How are we going to root out pride? We're going to have a renewing in our mind. We're going to look at our intents and our thoughts. We're going to renew our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we do what it says in verse 3, we'll not accomplish what it says in verse 1 and 2. Let's look at these things and let's let them sink in. We want to offer an invitation at this time for any that have been taught and would like to obey the first principles. If you understand what is required, we encourage you to do that. Don't put it off. Do it this morning while you have time and opportunity. In humility, submit yourself to the act of baptism that will take your sins away and put you in the right relationship with God. If you're here this morning and you need the prayers of the church, if we can do anything to assist you, we would invite you to come. I want to also make the invitation, if anyone wants to study these things that we've talked about this morning, I'd be happy to sit down with an open Bible and go through any of these things that we have presented and study them together with you. If we can help you this morning, come forward as we stand and sing the song that has been selected.